Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 11, where I'll be revisiting the film Moonraker. So it's been brought to my attention that I don't think people like this film, Joe. Who says such a thing? I, I don't know. I can't believe it, but apparently this is one of the like most hated films out there. I can't quite believe it, and I also can at the exact same time. <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite funny, actually, because earlier today I was browsing Hot UK Deals. Little plug for them, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you and any, coincidentally, uh, the exact same day we're recording this, Moonraker on Blu-ray came up on the list. Oh, okay. Which it doesn't often, for some reason. Uh, but it came up being like, oh, on Blu-ray, £2.74, I think it was. So I was like, oh, there's a load of comments on there. Let's take a look at that. And it was a bit like they weren't talking about the deal and the price or anything it was just a big war in the comments between like this is the worst bond film i hate it and other people saying no it's great i love it it's one of the best how could you uh, so very very divided opinions in that comment section so are you saying you haven't got a referral link to share to our listeners i don't know i'll send an email <laughs> during this and see what happens but uh, okay no, but sadly not i i it's funny because, yeah, I, I've heard of sort of similar and I've read similar sort of viewpoints of of really kind of the the whole sci-fi aspect of this film and, and just people hating it. But the thing I got from watching this recently is that it's can't believe just just how similar it is to The Spy Who Loved Me. It's it's so flagrant in its carbon copy. Uh, it, it's like it's funny how two such similar films can be so wildly different with opinions well it's very similar yes like there's so many things they just ripped out of the last film and put into this one but for me anyway and maybe this is jumping ahead it did have a very different feel to it and i almost feel like the way we're watching these films that it might actually be better like someone might get on more with moonraker if they watched it in a vacuum and didn't watch after the spy who loved me because like so the Spy Who Loved Me was the big hit. And then this is the carbon copy that also did a load of things different. So it's kind of like comparing the two. One is always going to come less favorably, which is, well, Moonraker. Yeah, that is true. I think especially given that we have just watched The Spy Who Loved Me, a lot of the, the similarities or where they've tried to do it, but not quite as well, really shines through. Hmm. It does make me think, like, obviously we approach this ranking and this podcast by doing it in order. There is a part of me that kind of would be very interested to see what if we had done this by, like, just doing a random order, put all the names in the list, randomize them, and then just watch them in that way and see how the list was built up. Well, that was one of the... When you first came to me with this idea about doing this podcast, that was one of the things I thought we, we might do, is do it randomly. But, uh, yeah, I think that would have ended up with a very different... Well, obviously a very different... Um, uh, list right now given that we'd have watched different films but the final order probably would have been different too yeah yeah that's what i'm very curious about like we obviously didn't do that because that would be way too confusing for people i think like if you just want to hear what we think of the bond films and you're like okay so i'll check out dr no but okay that's episode 21 what uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah i think it would be a different list I think it would be very different because then you just you don't compare the films in the same way. And this is another one where we talked about the spy who loved me is copying off you only live twice, but we've seen it before and we're going to see it again. But yeah, it's another one where it just copies a lot from another film. So now as we go into this, we're just going to compare them. 
Yeah, and I just want to make it very crystal clear right at the top of their podcast that I'm going to sound very hypocritical because I'm going to be, as I'm discussing this with you, I'm probably going to be bashing the film a lot of times and saying things didn't really work and this was kind of crap. I, I'm fairly sure it's still going to go quite high on my list regardless. Well, that's what I got wrong last time, didn't I? I thought you had this above The Spy Who Loved Me. But where did you actually have Moonraker? Was this at number five? Uh, this was at number four. It was right below right below The Spy Who Loved Me. Wow. Because yeah. I don't think I listed it at all in either of mine. So I didn't think it was at the very bottom or at the very top. So it's interesting that you had it as high as four. I know, right? <laughs> it's mad. <laughs> Uh, so I guess ex- expectations were high from your side. It's actually one of the more recent films I'd watched before starting this uh, ranking. Kind of like how you had said with The Man with a Golden Gun. Um, this was one that I'd only watched maybe a few months. Yeah, a few months Every ago. Every second so. Sunday for you, this <laughs> film, isn't it? So it, it was quite fresh in my mind and I kind of knew what to expect, which I think helped. Wow, okay. So you'd seen it recently and then said, yes, that is my number four film. Yeah, yeah, it stayed there. <laughs> okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's a little bit different because I watched this back in 2012 for 007 Legends, and I remember being like, there's stuff I like about it, but it's a bit silly for my taste. But it has been like 10, 11 years since that point. And also, I am warming to this cheese a little bit, the Roger Moore cheese. Mm-hmm. Like, not... Not so much Diamonds Are Forever, obviously, but I have enjoyed some of those elements more than I thought I had. So going into this one, I was like, okay, I kind of roughly know what this is, and this is a silly film. I'm going to try what I did for Diamonds Are Forever unsuccessfully and just take Moonraker as it is and try and enjoy those silly elements that I've enjoyed in the large Roger Moore films and just try and take it for what it is. I think you've enjoyed some of the cheese more than I have, surprisingly, in the past few that we've watched. So, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you're being very open to that. Well, I'm a very open-minded guy, Joe, as you know. Oh, yes, as everyone says. <laughs> okay, well, let's just get into this. So, we have the circles, and at this point, I always think it's the music different. I think I might just have to stop caring about the music of this, because oh. it's just driving me insane that I don't know if it's different or not. But I think the music was different this time. Oh, See, of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. I I heard it slightly. I just heard more of like in my notes. All I put was it like made like a, a ting a ting noise. Like there was like a little triangle or some little sparkliness to the Bond theme that I didn't recognize before. Huh. So I think it was a slightly different Bond kind of gun barrel. Sorry, not oh, the Bond theme, but John the gun barrel. Barry, what are you doing to us? I know, he just likes to keep us on our toes. I appreciate it. So, yeah, John Barry is back for this one. I don't know if that's why maybe it was different last time. Even Maybe it wasn't different last time. I don't know. But, yeah, I'm going to have to disconnect from this a little bit. But uh, the walk is the same. Roger Moore comes across. He does his little shot. That's all the same from the last film. No difference there. Unless you want to tell me otherwise. And I missed it. Nope. No, all good. No diamonds. No sparklies. <laughs> no. Still the slow turn. It's still there. Ah, there we go. So... Yeah, so we start off with a plane in the sky uh, with a spacecraft or a space shuttle shuttle on it. And on this space shuttle, it says Moonraker in big, bold letters. And we see a couple of pilots. So this like plane is just shipping this space shuttle uh, somewhere. And we have these two pilots. One is English and one is American. And we get some dramatic music kick in. And it shows two of the people 
inside the space shuttle that's attached to the plane getting out of like these future beds yeah i don't know beds. like <laughs> yeah like those star trekky sort of future sort of like beds. pods yeah yeah like pods like planet of the apes is, is what i was thinking uh and <laughs> in my notes i just put they be creeping um <laughs> I, yeah that is one of the things i knew this was coming and it, i forgot just how quickly you do see it because this is pre-title sequence of the the fake zero g which often is just people moving slowly because that's all they could do really i mean it's 1979 so yeah just like slow moving to simulate low gravity i mm, see i didn't even really pick up that that was what that was supposed to be because they're still in earth's atmosphere why would they be slow like that oh maybe, maybe they were just tired like maybe they were aching from the sleep i don't know later on you definitely get that maybe, oh, maybe i was yeah. a bit premature maybe they didn't want the spacecraft to creak like kids sneaking <laughs> through the house, don't want to wake the parents. Those creaky floorboards of the space shuttle. Oh yeah, they didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they're in the cockpit. They they were hiding in there. They get out of, or they get into the cockpit. Apologies. So they were hiding in the spacecraft. They get out. They go into the cockpit and they take off. Basically, they they get everything going. They get the engine on the space shuttle off and shoot forward. And the jets from the space shuttle blow up the plane, um, yeah. which is a very nice explosion. It is. Say. And did you recognise that the, the the British guy flying, who says like, "Oh, always trust the RAF." That sort of. It's quite a young guy. It's the same guy from the Spy Who Loved Me that immediately dies after saying, "I'll go in," <laughs> at the end. Oh, the same actor. So he came back to life and then died straight away again. <laughs> he's had what, like two minutes of screen time between the two films, and he's died yeah. in both. Yeah, not great um not great innings for that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's the Sean Bean of the Bond franchise. He really is. <laughs> Poor guy. But yeah, so the space shuttle leaves and we cut to Bernard Lee or M on the phone. I say Bernard Lee because I believe this is his last appearance, right? I think he told me it that is. before. Yeah. And I have to say I love the guy. He is looking quite old here. Looking quite pale, I found. He looks kind of a bit like gaunt and yeah like not not well clearly yeah he doesn't look okay um which is kind of it's a bit sad to see uh it's definitely very bittersweet every time you see m in this film because it's like really nice to see bernard lee as m and m is still great in this film but it's just he looks quite weak and tired and we kind of know where it goes so yeah it was quite like the fact that this is like the first scene and you see him straight away i was like oh man that's yeah i'm just sad yeah um but he he basically is on the phone and gets told what's going on and it's it's the same gag as last time where he's like i'm gonna put my best man on it don't worry about that so he goes over to money penny and says why is bond uh, what's going on with the africa job that bond's on and money penny says he's on his last leg sir of which we cut to bond stroking a woman's leg and kissing oh. her so good so good so genius i I will <laughs> say that like th- this is i don't i don't mind i don't mind them reusing like spy who loved me was a big hit very successful brought the series the series back to some sort of you know success and stability so they thought so right let, let's just copy and the same director we should add as well it's, it's lewis mm. gilbert once again but um so i get that but this is the exact same shot like literally down to the angles where you see M open his door and Money Penny through the doorway. It's just like, could they not maybe have 
done something a little bit different. It's just, oh, it's just too much, too much. Oh yeah, definitely. Like we talked about it last time. How well we we don't really hate these jokes, but they do them so often that it's just kind of becoming a bit much. And the fact that Moonraker starts off with that exact type of joke, just ripped from Spy Who Loved Me, just tweaked a little bit. It's like, yeah, it 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 made me laugh because of how like blatant they were doing this. Like <laughs> it made me laugh for the wrong reasons. Yeah, same. Uh, so yes, yeah, so Bond's in the plane with this young woman kissing her and we well actually we zoom out to see that they're on a plane um, a different plane from before and then oh let me get this right so he's he's kissing the woman the pilot then shoots the controls of the plane and then comes out but also the woman has a gun and points it at bond I think I got that in the wrong order I think the woman says oh I've got you bond and has a gun and then the pilot comes out I don't blame you. This this literally this happens so they waste absolutely no time. This literally happens in the span of about ten seconds, I wanna say. It's mad mm. how quick. Yeah, so the the tagline of this film is something like uh where all bonds end, this one begins. And I believe it's kind of referring to this sequence and this stunt. Because oh, it's okay. it's like Goldfinger, right, on the plane and usually Bond kinda ends the films on these planes and we get the whole Bond on the plane double cross and then a big action sequence. So I'm assuming that tagline is referring to this. I didn't, yeah, I didn't put those two together, but that's, yeah, that makes sense. But yes, so we got the pilot with a gun and Bond with a gun, and the yeah, the controls have been completely shot out. So Bond attacks the pilot, they have a little bit of a fight, very quick fight, and the door of the plane opens up entirely, that just goes and Bond is hanging out of the plane. We get some shots of outside of the plane and Bond hanging out the door, just hanging on as the pilot's trying to kick him out. Uh, and we get some very blatant shots that I would say does not look like Roger at all. Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. It's 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 not. It's right, I'm not going to judge too harshly. I don't blame him. And you don't hang Roger Moore out of a plane. Um, but yeah they try and zoom it out and it's cool that we get these shots of outside of the plane and people hanging out of it that in itself is quite cool uh, but you can just tell by the hair that that's not roger's uh main mm-hmm. but yeah so uh james bond is being pushed out but he does the old flipperoo and the pilot kicks out but importantly the pilot is wearing a parachute and bond is not uh, so the the pilot is basically by destroying the controls, he's planning to kind of kill Bond and crash the plane or crash the plane with Bond on it. But the pilot jumps out of the plane. And as Bond climbs back in after the pilot jumps out, Jaws is there. What? <laughs> wow. No indication uh, before this point. Jaws is there and just pushes Bond out and smiles. Yep. <laughs> he's a happy guy. Yeah, he can teleport, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about the supernatural element of Jaws, but they do... Well, I think this is the only time they do this whole teleporting thing, but it is very kind of supernatural, the idea of this just massive person on a tiny plane somehow being able to hide and then just show up. Well, listen, we've seen how well Jaws can hide in wardrobes on trains, so he's just got a lot of practice. He knows what he's doing by now. Yeah, the, he's figured it out. Whatever his trick is, he's figured it out. Yeah. 
But yeah, you're right. It is very similar to the closet scene. I didn't really put that together, but it is the same bit, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Hmm. So yeah, so Jaws pushes Bond and smiles and shows off his metal teeth and just sees Bond fall. And so we've now got the pilot falling and we got Bond falling from this massive height just going down in the sky. And Bond sees the pilot and starts tracking over to him or tracks him down. And at this point, the Bond theme plays and it's all very exciting. And Bond gets to the pilot, grabs him. They have another bit of a fight uh, trying to grab the gun and they just start spinning in the air. And we get a lot of different cuts showing all of this. A lot of different like outside cuts showing them falling. A lot of shots of in first person. I think we've got some like green screen or blue screen or whatever you want to call it. We get some of those as well. Lots of different shots um, with their fighting and... Did you notice with the Bond theme here that like they extend it in a way that sounds really bad? I did not notice that, no. Oh, so they added in like an extra kind of, uh, what would you call it? Not a bar. Like, like... like a stanza. Yeah, like they redid the end bit. Like they did it twice, but for some reason the edit was really bad. So it's really obvious where they kind of shove it in to play it a second time. Oh, is that when they need it for when Jaws comes in again? No, no, this is here. Oh, right. Okay, so it's just just bad. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just. Don't worry about it. It's just bad. Don't worry about it. <laughs> of course. Uh, but eventually, Bond gets to the guy and gets the parachute off him quite awkwardly. But I guess that's what needs to happen, right? He needs to be able to like take off the guy's parachute and puts it on, um, which eventually he does. And Bond then kicks the pilot away, and the pilot's like, ah as Bond puts on this red and yellow parachute, which I'm assuming the red and yellow is a callback to the spy who loved me as well. Mm, oh, oh, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because his ski gear was red and yellow, and now we've got Moonraker where he's falling, and his parachute that he steals is also bright red and bright yellow. Yeah, maybe. I think so. So then he's trying to put it on, he's having a bit of trouble with the buckle, but Jaws has also jumped out of the plane. <laughs> oh, Jaws. <laughs> he couldn't get enough. Uh, and he starts falling, and then the Bond theme starts playing again. So we had it playing before, we get some weird edit where it stops, and then it now kicks in again, now that Jaws is falling, and Mm -hmm. it's like, okay. Um, But we also get some shots of Jaws falling, which it's not fair to say, but also clearly not the actor. (laughs) Like, clearly some other dude falling, and not um richard I, I can't remember his name but clearly not that guy yeah i mean it, it's definitely a very um kind of you can spot him <laughs> uh, richard yes. keel is, is his name the actor like they picked him because he is very distinctive and even if you are like going like through the air crazy fast lots of fast motion you can still see it's not him and it was kind of a, a bit I've said this before, but like it was a it was a stunt that was doomed to fail, especially for people watching it on Blu-ray in high quality. Oh yeah, that that's fair. Like if you were watching this on TV, you wouldn't even notice. Like, yeah, and it's not actually really a big deal. It's just there's quite a few times where they show like Jaws's face as he falls, uh, but like not zoomed in, but like at an angle, and it's like yeah, that's not the guy. But still, it's fine. Uh, so yeah. Jaws catches up to Bond, grabs him. Goes for the old bite, but at this moment Bond pulls his parachute. Jaws goes to pull his, but he just breaks it, and we see a circus below. <laughs> of course, of course, 
with circuit yeah. music playing and Jaws is like, ah, uh, and then he lands in the circus and it deflates and that takes us to the to the credits or the intro sequence. So I really enjoyed this. Really? Um, okay. I thought this this height kind of aspect to it and having people falling like this was really quite intense. Uh, and it really worked for me. Like, yes, there's there's some issues with the music where I think the way they use the Bond theme, like I think it's a great use of the Bond theme. Like, yes, play it during a stunt like this where you have people falling and trying to get to each other. But it sounded a bit weird. And yeah, I wasn't into the circus bit at the end. And yes, the actors are a little bit off. But I think the idea itself is really strong. And I think it is really kind of striking to see these people falling and the idea of Bond just kind of falling with a parachute trying to kind of catch this other guy like that in itself is like okay let, yeah let's go uh very kind of exciting start to the film so i yeah i really enjoyed this sequence uh it's funny because i remember when i kind of reviewed this film in the past i i said that i, I love this this pre-title sequence kind of just for the same reasons you said like this is such it's a cool idea you know stealing someone's parachute in midair um so cool and the fact that this was done for real it's that's one of the things you can always you know you can give it to the 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 crew that did these films is that they did do a lot of stunts for real we've seen it numerous times um just like the ski jump in the last film this one they just i think they did like 80 odd skydives to get all the footage for this um and it's great but i don't know what it was about this time watching it there was just a such a such a disconnect for me in terms of i can I can, you know, give give the film its credit for for doing this stunt, but I just couldn't. I was not. I know it's kind of silly to say for a Bond film, but I just wasn't very grounded in in the film. Like okay. that was so clearly it's so clearly not Roger, and it's so clearly not Jaws. And I know that shouldn't really bother me, but for this time it just did, and I, I just didn't feel anything because it was so like these sort of stunts where it's such a night and day between these big wide open shots and then you've got the close-up inserts of Roger and and Richard that are done on the sound stage and it's like really jarring it didn't work for me this time and I think also coming from watching The Spy Who Loved Me so recently and where they got Jaws quite quite good I think as like a menacing character by the end it was a bit more comedy whereas this film it's like this character is comedic right from the get-go there is no they're not even trying to make him seem very menacing anymore apart from maybe one scene we see later on but that's because of the costume less so him it's like they just going all out with this is a comedy character now he is not meant to be a very intimidating scary henchman which i just think is a bit of a shame but i think any other time i would i would really like this but this particular viewing it just didn't sit with me i'm sad yeah that's a weird one to kind of figure out because, of course, with these films, like, say we, we jump back to Dr. No and you've got the car chase scenes and you can it looks terrible because of the rotoscoping. Like, mm-hmm. But, you know, neither of us was like, oh, well, that looks terrible, so we're going to put it down in the ranking or we're going to think lesser of it. You kind of... It's a film from the 60s, early days, small budget, you accept it. But it sounds like with this film, you kind of aren't seeing it in that same light and you're like holding it to a higher standard yeah i think i mean it it is a lot to do with the fact that they did bring jaws back because they knew it was a fan favorite character but he's he's just not as good in this film like it's just just like (laughs) i was gonna say objectively i can't really say that but 
But for me, it's just nowhere near as good in this film compared to the previous one. Oh, okay. So it is more about Jaws rather than the, the uh, stunt itself. Um, I don't know. It's um, it's a confusing mixture of feelings. I really want, <laughs> I really want to like the stunt more, but at the, at this time, I didn't. Yeah, I suppose we'll move on. But that is very interesting because you only watched this a few months ago. <laughs> I know, and I loved it then. Very strange. <laughs> but yeah, I guess there's something about watching these back to back, which makes you see this in a different light. I think so. I think that must be it. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I loved it. I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I think Spy Loved Me is better, but I think the fact that this is quite a practical effect of, and, you know, a very simple one, really, and quite practical makes it more impressive for me. Yeah. Um, and it made me think of Mission Impossible Fallout, if you ever saw that film. Um, they did a skydiving stunt, and I think there is just something very cool about seeing those sort of stunts in these sort of spy films. They're just a, it's just a very good fit cool spy guy falls from large height has to grab somebody else and it's all very dramatic yeah definitely a good idea for uh, the the opening of the film for sure Hmm. so after jaws's crash landing into the circus where we even get a bit of like circus drum roll (laughs) that kicks off the title sequence which um is of course moonraker the song performed by shirley bassey for the third time um i'll talk about the film first uh sorry the song first rather than the visuals but i i'm gonna hold my hands up and say that i recognize that this is probably to most people the weakest bassy song right i really like it still i actually might put this one above goldfinger i really like the moonraker song it's not it's nothing very interesting again it's quite a slow um gentle ballady type song but it's just something about it I really like. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I'm going to be a bit more basic and say I don't like it. That's fair. As I, I mean, I, I do understand that because it is really, it's not, it's not up there in terms of the like memorability of Goldfinger, and I think Diamonds Are Forever is, is, is better for me. But I still really like it. Can't, well, this is the romantic it. era, isn't it? Like, this is very much following on from what we saw with the spy who loved me where it's more of a slower romantic song and we've had those throughout bond but this is kind of carrying on for that which i don't dislike that side of bond and the bond themes i think my problem with it is that i don't think it plays the shirley bassey strength at all Mm, where like goldfinger allows her to really show off her voice and even diamonds are forever uh to a certain extent as well where this one feels like they're trying to fit like a was it a square block in a circle hole or something? Like it's it's forcing Shirley Bassey to sing this slower paced romantic song, probably because Nobody Does It Better was such a big hit. And now they're trying to get someone very famous to do the similar sort of style. And I don't think it fits her very well. So I wouldn't say she does a bad job or anything. But I think Shirley Bassey, she needs a big hook. She needs like a big memorable hook. And it doesn't have to be Goldfinger. You know, Diamonds Are Forever didn't have a, a massive hook. But this film has no hook at all. And to me, that kind of means it just kind of plods along and never really goes anywhere. And it's like it's fine as background music, I guess. But as an actual Bond theme, that's supposed to kind of get you into the film. And especially over that opening, it just doesn't quite work. And I think we've just heard that romantic style of Bond thing better before. Um, sorry, Shirley, but I don't think you were the one for this. 
To be fair, I, I'm sure she would probably agree with you. I was reading that I think she was given this song quite last minute. So she doesn't really, I was seeing, like reading a quote that she doesn't even feel like she has ownership of it. It's not her song in the same sense as Diamonds Are Forever and Goldfinger, which makes sense to why maybe she didn't sing it during that the Bond orchestra thing that we went to. But um, yeah, I, I still really like it, even though I, I fully accept all of those <laughs> those criticisms because they are valid. It's just a soft spot for it. In terms of the actual visuals, though, for the title sequence, i got to say it's really similar to Spy Who Loved Me. And I, again, I just think they were quite dull. It was I, I can't really even tell you anything that was dramatically different. A lot more silhouettes. Oh, there was one thing I liked, actually. Tell a lie. There was one thing I liked, which is where there's this one shot of, like, a woman doing sort of like a Superman pose almost, silhouetted, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then she suddenly like fills up with dots. And I was like, oh, are they bringing back the dots? Have I forgot about the dots? I'd like to see some dots. Give me some dots. And then, no, they do it once, and then they never do it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, they do have some dots, but it's not in the same, like, Doctor No sense. And I thought they might do something quite cool with the dots and, like, I've said dots too many times, um, bringing in, like, sci-fi, like, some like uh, visual tech stuff into it, maybe mixing that. No, nothing. So I really don't have much to say about the, se- the visuals. I think it was just more of the same. It's just naff. It, like, what are they doing with these? Like, how have these been, like, just not very good for this many films? Yeah. Like, the last one that I think was good was Live and Let Die. Yeah. We've had, like, multiple films where it just seems like they've kind of given up a little bit, where it's just so basic. It's just, like, just put some blue lights and a bit of smoke and we'll have some women's silhouettes. They'll do some... Anyone got a trampoline? I guess we'll just use that this time. And they can just do some flips and we'll just zoom in into one of their faces. It's fine. And, oh, yeah, that's a lovely picture of Roger. We'll throw it in. It, <laughs> it just seems so, like, half-hearted. Like, they just don't really give these their own identity anymore. Like, all of the last four one, like, could have just, you could have swapped them and they would yeah. have worked because they're all so similar and just so forgettable. There's just no strong individual visual identity anymore. And it's just kind of disappointing because we know how good they can be. That's, yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm now waiting until we get to one that, that does have that again. I, I really hope it's soon. I can't think off the top of my head. So uh, it might be a nice surprise when the time comes. But I don't think they need to do that much. That's what bothers me about it, where we get a little bit of the whole space theme because we get like one picture of Earth or something. Like we get a little bit of that. But they have the themes in with the films themselves. Like each uh, film has a strong theme that they could have incorporated into this. And you could have just had like, right, get a load of silhouetted women and then we'll just get a load of spacey pictures or something. Like that, that yeah. would have been enough but yeah. they just don't for some reason and they just keep it really generic and it's like it's right there it's like what you were saying with the man with the golden gun like it was right there with the fun house <laughs> to do so many cool things and they just don't and i just don't get it no me neither it's sad um <laughs> it's sad it's sad but let's move on because uh what else i find sad is is how the film then begins after the title sequence only for a little bit but it, it cuts to um Bond, back in London, uh, back in MI6 offices, going to see M. So you get a bit of a money penny scene right at the beginning. And I just, I think it was this film where I've now realised that if you'd have asked me before doing this ranking, oh, you know, how's like the money penny Bond uh, relationship with, with Roger Moore? I would have said, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's good. It's I like them both. You know, it's just as good as Sean Connery. But actually, it's like, no, 
It's definitely not. I really don't think they have... I, I just... There's nothing between this scene. I can't even remember what Bond says, but it's just... I feel like there's no chemistry between uh, Lois Maxwell and Roger Moore, especially not in this film. And it's kind of a shame because I, I, I remembered them being better together, but yeah, it's just not. Well, there was the recurring joke that... Well, they did twice where Bond describes what he's done in the mission and she just doesn't believe him. Oh, yeah, that's so it. It's like, yeah. oh, you're late, James. And he was like, oh, yes, I was falling out of a plane without a parachute. And she's like, hmm. And <laughs> Bond's like, well, I did. <laughs> and I that's did. it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. But yeah, it is odd. Like, there is no chemistry between these two. I think some of it is, like... like I said this a few films ago and I still believe it. Like, she is starting to look a bit old. Like, it's a bit... Like, I'm not saying if she was young it would work because we've seen Roger Moore with young women. That's not a great combo either. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> but, but, like, again, the way you saw Money Penny with Sean Connery, like, this is, like, 20 years ago, almost. And trying to recreate that same relationship and chemistry with a different actor, like, 20 years later, it's just never going to work. And they just haven't found a way to kickstart it again with something a bit fresh and different. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying they needed to recast her or anything, but they just haven't found a good new spin on it. So it's always just kind of feels a little bit lesser than what we had with Sean. Yeah. It feels like I didn't really even try with this, but I guess they're just moving on. So yeah, Bond goes in to see M and in M's office, you've got Q as well. And also the minister that we saw from the last film, Frederick, Frederick Gray. They're all there, uh, basically, to talk about what we saw in the pre-title sequence. About he was in um, uh, the... Live and Let Die as well, wasn't he? Was he in Live and Let Die? Maybe it wasn't that. I'm sure he's in a different film as well. I might be he wrong. Might... He might be in some more later on as well. He... Yeah. He's in more of these films than I remember, actually. I definitely recognised him like straight away. I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Um, they're here talking about what we saw, so the shuttle being, well, being kidnapped, although they just see it as missing because they've... They have Q kind of show a, a TV screen of, of the wreckage where the, the plane crash landed and they've searched and there's no sign of the shuttle. So they think it's gone missing. And that's really kind of it in terms of like the briefing. They just kind of tell Bond, yeah, go and investigate. Where is, where's the shuttle gone? It was on loan from America. So we kind of need to find it sort of deal. Uh, and then we get Q showing off a little gadget which I really like this gadget, and I'll, we'll talk about this, this later on because it does come up a few times, but uh, he gives Bond a dart gun, a little um, kind of wrist dart gun that is activated by nerve impulses, I think he says. So all you have to do is like flip up, like Spider-Man kind of, I suppose, and shoot out some, some dart guns. He's got some poison-tipped ones and some sleeper darts, I think, and Bond has a go demonstrating by shooting shooting one at M's painting which i can't remember m's line but i do like i just love this m I'm, I'm so sad it's his last one i really do like his expressions and his reactions to things even though bond just really does seem the most careless in front of his boss that we've seen him so far hmm. and he says like no thank you <laughs> but it's the way he delivers it he doesn't just say no thank you it's he's actually quite out of character like he's a lot more mellow and calm this m uh, that mm. we've seen in the last few films yeah, but I will say I was wrong about the Minister of Defense. He it was the spy who loved me, but we do see him for pretty much the whole Roger Moore era at this point. It seems. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought he'd come back. Yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, I, I like this gadget as well. It's always nice when they do something with the watch. It does seem almost a little sci-fi about the nerve impulses, especially because Q just puts it on Bond. And it's like, it's triggered by nerve impulses. And then Bond just shoots it. And it's like, okay. Like, that's <laughs> a bit. Hmm. All right. He picks things up very quickly, Bond. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very smart, that one. But we also do get in the scene, like similar to the other ones, Roger Moore being very cocky as well. Whereas like, yeah, as he walks in, he's like, don't worry, we need you on this. And it's like, oh, Moonraker, sir. And then just goes off about Moonraker and talks about Drac Industries. Um, A small detail I quite liked in this scene as well, where Q kind of, like there's a mirror and it goes down and they play some footage. um, And it says most secret on the like oh, yeah. on the footage which yeah, i was like yeah. that's a very british way of <laughs> it's not like top secret or like you know super you know it's nothing like that it's like oh it's terribly private you shouldn't <laughs> don't be peeking out <laughs> i want to see that now i want to see terribly private on documents <laughs> no, get rid of the fioras only terribly private <laughs> yeah uh, and also i have to say and maybe this is unfair but i think roger's looking a little bit older as well oh, yeah i was gonna say when you mentioned about money penny uh, this is the film where i started to really see it i don't know what like there's only two years difference between this and spy love me but something happened in those two years maybe they changed lenses or something on the camera but yeah <laughs> it really was a lot more obvious to me like yeah it, i think it's because it's across the board it's because m is clearly you know not well and Q always looks like that, so I guess that's fine. Um, but Roger Moore, it's like, it's not too old. I would still say he's fine. And there wasn't any moments in this where I was like, oh, he's super old now, he's past it. But you can kind of see the cracks, quite literally, uh, at this point. <laughs> and yet we have three more films to go. I know. Uh, <laughs> I already said at the start, he was too old for a few to a kill. But if this is what he looks like in Moonraker... <laughs> oh, i'm in for a shock listen i think he got some surgery done in between some films so it's not oh as that'll bad. be fine then yeah <laughs> eight 1980s plastic surgery you'll see it when the time comes oh yeah oh no roger <laughs> uh, but yeah so this all concludes where bond is being sent to california to investigate drake industries no drake Drac. it's drac. <laughs> it's, drake's here <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> nathan drake industries it's all thing drag yeah. industries um because it's he it was his shuttle that got lost um but yeah we cut to james bond in a helicopter with a young woman which get used to this there are a lot of times where bond and it's something i noticed throughout this entire film where just so many times bond shows up somewhere and there is like a woman in her 20s just there looking like gorgeous and it just <laughs> happens so many times. I'm just like, I get it's James Bond, but he doesn't have to literally see a gorgeous young woman every single time he walks into a room. Like, it's fine. They can just be a dude there. No, it's in the contract. It's, it's in the, the contract. contract. He, yeah, he had to. Yeah. Oh, that's fair. That's where the budget went, I think. Yeah. Uh, and we get a little welcome to California, Mr. Bond, uh, from the woman who's the pilot. And they fly over this airport and we find out she's a pilot for the Drac... I'm going to be so paranoid about saying Drake now. <laughs> Please ignore it when I say Drake. Uh, the Drac Corporation. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not Drac, though. It's Drax. Drax. Yeah. I wrote it down wrong then. That's why I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> Drax. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm going to have to write that down somewhere. Drax. Okay. I wrote down 
the Drake. <laughs> By Strax. Yeah, Strax. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so Drax, uh, his, we see a massive complex. So he's in California, and we see this massive, yeah, like uh, operation. And it all gets explained that this is where the Moonraker shuttle is being built. So there was the one that was being transported, but this is not a unique shuttle. There's quite a lot of them. Um, and we get a lot of aerial shots kind of showing the area. And in the distance, Bond sees this very fancy-looking estate uh, by this forest, which stands out because it's California, and California is quite a dry, almost desert-like kind of area. And it's uh, the the Drax residence. Mm, some fancy-looking French manor house or something. Yeah, like it's it's extremely posh. Like, and that's something about this character throughout, where it's like posh and fancy to like the nth degree. Like, this is like. Roy- like british royalty fancy like it's it's very much is meant to look like a can't remember the name of the estate uh but like a, an estate that like uh the british monarchy would own yeah yeah downton abbey think downton abbey <laughs> yeah very much that uh and we see that uh, well they then land um they land there in front of it we see a load of women and young people working out in the garden training to be astronauts well explained and we find out that this was all was it all funded by the french or did he just i think he just a- imported a load of french materials to build it right yeah she says like oh you know brick by brick it was transported over this whole scene in the helicopter is basically just uh, t- telling us hey this drax guy he's rich <laughs> like he's, he's really doing rich. all right <laughs> he's doing all right for himself yeah he's both rich and he's spending it in like a very over-the-top manner yeah, because they, then they say that he even tried to buy... I think he did buy the Eiffel Tower, but they wouldn't let him take it over. Yeah, so Drax like just owns the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> but the French wouldn't let it leave Paris. But he still owns it, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So absurd. Um, but yeah, then we cut inside. Uh, so they go into this huge mansion, and inside is also very fancy, very over the top. We've got lots of fancy paintings and chandeliers and stuff it's it's very similar to what we had last time uh, with stormberg it, it's very much that although like somehow even more over the top with fanciness like this yeah. is very much a guy who likes to surround himself with the finer things uh, it's just interesting that they took that exact same quality from the last film and it's like let's just do that again but fancier <laughs> yep another example of that yeah so there's a man playing piano to two young women uh, and it's it's Drax, and Drax gets up, introduces himself. The women leave, and then they have a, a brief conversation about how Drax isn't very happy that the U.S. government has lost his Moonraker uh, shuttle, and he makes some comments about he's just not very happy about if you're apologizing and, and things like that. It's not really very clear why Bond is there. Like Bond has just been sent there to kind of investigate to see what happened but i mm. never really kind of understood what he was generally trying to do um I, I i guess it's because q said before that in the wreckage the moonraker shuttle wasn't there yeah but i don't know if bond su- suspects that drax is up to something straight away or if that's something that like happens later yeah it's quite funny how they just immediately go to well, Bond just immediately goes to being suspicious of him. 
Because, yeah, you're right. I don't know. We, well, so far we haven't really had any any subtle sign that there's, you know, it is Drax. So I guess it's just, I'm trying to think now whether there is something that, that does tell us eventually, like, that why Bond would start investigating, but can't actually remember now. <laughs> I think there is. I think he does find something that doesn't quite add up. Right. But yeah, it's a little bit odd, but it's one of those where it's kind of, it's very much portrayed that this guy is a villain and bad news. Um, because in this scene, we see two dogs, like two hounds, not too sure on the breeds, but like, I would say they're evil looking dogs, but they look so happy in this film. <laughs> like most of the shots, they're just smiling and enjoying themselves that yeah. I never bought that these dogs were like evil and would like rip someone or like bite someone. They were basically like Mr. Burns hounds, you know, like, yeah, like black pointy ears, like yeah. that, that sort of dog. But they just look so happy most of the time. I just, <laughs> Game of oh. Thrones, this ain't with these dogs. Um, so he then like gets this big jar or urn or something, opens it up and there's raw meat inside as he's talking and throws it down in front of the dogs. But the dogs don't do anything. And Drax then sits down and says, ah, there's one thing that you British have done right, and that's that's afternoon tea. <laughs> <laughs> and then, in the most menacing way possible, offers a cucumber sandwich. A cucumber sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they sit down, they have some afternoon tea, um, of course. Bond says no to the cucumber sandwich. It's one of those trope the cucumber sandwich, but I don't think you see it so much anymore. But I guess at one point that was a big british thing like do you know anyone we're both british do you know anyone who eats cucumber sandwiches i will say this the only thing i can think about with cucumber sandwiches is in the year six uh in the year six play um when i when we did uh cinderella and i was prince charming of um, course yeah <laughs> of course uh one of my lines was about how i was inviting her for cucumber sandwiches so you know you're right it's definitely something there about it being posh yeah, it's very British, apparently. But I would, if someone offered me a cucumber sandwich, I'd be like, "No, oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> that sounds terrible." I guess you got that <laughs> crunch, but that's that's all you get. Yeah, but I just think like, surely it'd make the bread go all soggy. I just don't, I don't really see how that would work. No, no, it's not for me. I would have said no as well. No as well. Let's talk about cucumber sandwiches for the rest of the podcast. Actually. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> give the people what they want. Exactly. Uh, so as Drax is enjoying his cucumber sandwich, he then snaps his fingers, and that's when the dogs eat, basically showing how in control he is of these dogs who are supposed to look menacing but totally don't. Mm -hmm. um, and and at this point, the woman pilot comes back. Uh, do you know her name? Because I just always wrote it down as woman pilot. I wouldn't have expected anything less from you, Tom, with your name yeah. and conventions. Um, Corrine, her name is. Corrine, because she is actually a, not a massive character, but she does have a few scenes, doesn't she? She's oh, a yeah. somewhat yeah, yeah. important character. Uh, yeah, she comes back and takes Bond away to give them a tour. And then we see a, an Asian man who... Oh, I did look up his what country he's from. Because I wanted to say Japanese, but I think that's wrong. I didn't, so I'm going to rely on you for this. Oh, I'm going to have to check this. I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, he is... Yeah, he is Japanese. Okay, good. Okay. Um, so a very... Well, a very interesting Japanese man. Uh, he looks like someone who has, like, Beatlemania. He's going for that look. <laughs> wow. I, 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 yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, that haircut and everything, yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, so Ringo comes in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, well, I guess this is another sign that he is evil drag straight up. Like, they're not trying to hide it at all. This is your guy. Because uh, he asked the drags, he asked um, the Japanese man to make sure some harm comes to Bond. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gotta say, like, this whole introduction of Drax, I kind of like how how quick it is. They're just, they're not wasting any time. There he is. And it is, you're right in that it's quite similar to Stromberg in like the fancy gaudiness and paintings and, you know, playing piano. The classical music is back again. Uh, although the music did not match his playing on the piano at all, which kind of irked me. Um, but uh, I, I really like Drax. I think it's one of the reasons why this film is, is, is up there for me. It's just, I think his, I just think the actor that plays him is so, creepy like he's just got such a nice little weaselly voice you know the whole can i interest you in a cucumber sandwich and he's sort of like croaking it out almost and um yeah i and actually that the dialogue in this scene between him and bond where they're talking about the missing shuttle and stuff and bond's asking about what other businesses he has and drax is saying that he has subsidiaries all over the world i kind of missed i must have missed in previous viewings like how they they do plant the seed of his his evil plan, which we'll eventually get to very early on in the film where Bond is saying, um, or, or, or Drax is saying, you know, he does this because he likes to uh, seek out the best each nation has to offer. I wrote that down. And then Bond says uh, skills or people. And I think he says both. So it kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's getting there about what he eventually wants to do so early on, but kind of subtly. So I like it. I really like Drax. I overall like Drax. It's a difficult one, though, because the Bond franchise is so well known for its villains and there's so many kind of good ones. And overall, I like Drax, but I don't know if he brings that much compared to the other ones. I kind of... I see him quite similar to uh, Stromberg from the last film. Although we do get more screen time with Drax, which is very much appreciated. So he doesn't... He does disappear a little bit, but we get a lot more time with this guy and... I think he has a very similar plan to Stromberg, but we do get a bit more time with him to kind of understand it and his kind of personality. So that kind of like makes him a little bit better, not to jump ahead a bit, but yeah, that makes him a little bit more of a stronger villain because you get more of that time. Yeah, definitely. I feel like you definitely see more of his plan as well. Whereas Stromberg, it was just, he wants to nuke the world and start under underwater civilization. Whereas with this, you're actually seeing the steps that Drax takes to get to his plan, which I like. Yeah, I like that too. But I will say, and it's kind of a theme for me for this one, like it happens in this uh, scene and later ones, that I don't really get that chemistry between Bond and Drax. Hmm, okay. Like, it's fine, but there's not kind of that back and forth that we've seen with the other villains, which isn't a massive deal, but I think someone, someone like a Goldfinger is elevated due to the way that Bond kind of teased him and that power dynamic changing throughout the film. This one doesn't really have anything like that. He's more just kind of the villain of the week, who's a good villain of the week, but it's not like there's a relationship between Bond and Drax. And some of that might be because of Jaws being in this film, stealing some of that spotlight. But Bond and Drax is similar to me with Stromberg, as in, yeah, there's not really that connection. Like when Bond finally does take out Drax later on, spoilers, it's there's no real kind of... It's not super satisfying, both because of the way it plays out, but also because these are not two men going up against each other like uh, Scaramanga say. This is just kind of a bad guy that Bond has to stop. Yeah, I think I think you're right in when you said about how Jaws is Jaws is arguably like the bigger villain in this film. Um, 
<laughs> hey, I'm here all week. <laughs> but yeah, like it definitely takes away from what could have been a stronger bond between Bond and, and Drax. So yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it happened in the last film and it's something that's carried over. Not as bad in this one, but yeah, the connection is Bond and George when you see that quite a lot in the film. Yeah, for sure. So after speaking to Drax, um, as Tom said, Corrine Car- comes in, the helicopter pilot, and, and whisks Bond away and goes to take him to go see, or tells to go see a Dr. Goodhead um, in the shuttle-making facilities. So he w- he goes and has a little bit of a tour there. And oh, this is our introduction to what is going to be the Bond girl of this film. Uh, emphasis on the girl, because... Uh, as Bond is walking through that sort of like lab area, office area, and he spots he spots Goodhead. He does ask, you know, oh, I'm I'm looking for a uh, Doctor Goodhead, and she goes, well, you, you've just met her, and oh, the, the I quote this next line quite a lot, which is bad because it's a terrible line. <laughs> oh no! Obviously, the joke is like Bond is expecting uh, a Doctor Goodhead to be a man, so when she says that, he goes, a woman. Like eyebrow raise, like it's shocking. A, a woman can be a doctor? Madness, madness. Um, I just—it's just the way he goes. A woman. So often, like whenever I see someone <laughs> say something about a woman, I'm off, I can't find myself going a woman. And I was like, oh crap! People don't understand what I'm referencing. Yeah, no, I'm looking... get that. Like <laughs> yeah, even I mean, a Bond fan, probably I know. would miss it. It's so bad. I need to stop doing it. Quite but, a moonraker uh... over here. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, yeah, we get the introduction of Dr. Holly Goodhead, who is, I think she is a NASA, well, she claims to be a NASA scientist on loan um, to help out Drax, the shuttle stuff. And she's there to give Bond a bit of a tour. So explains a little bit about the shuttles. And again, you get Cocky Bond stepping in, kind of showing off what he knows about how they can go up and they, they land again. And it's all this, all this mumbo jumbo, sci-fi mumbo jumbo. But they uh, eventually get to a what are these things called? G G force, G force testing something like that. Space, Centri- space. yeah, <laughs> centrifugal thing. You know where they test G forces and um, oh yeah, centrifuge. Yeah, I know what you mean centrifuge. That is it. Yeah, uh, they get there and uh, Doctor Goodhead says, "You know, do you want to go? Do you want to go on it, Bond?" And of course, it's Bond. He's got to show off and say, "Yeah, all right, I'll have a go." And so she straps him in. Um, kind of giving up, like telling the audience basically, oh, at, at 4Gs, you go unconscious, and most people, or like you can die if you reach 10Gs, sort of thing, setting well, up. Oh, let's the... get the numbers right here, Joe. Okay. Okay, go on then. So yeah. it's 3Gs is enough for launch, which apparently an old person can do. People mm-hmm. pass out at 7Gs, and if it ever goes to 20Gs, then you're you're dead. 20Gs is dead. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, setting up the audience there. Um, Bond straps in, gets his wrist strapped in, apparently to stop yourself, like, hitting yourself in the, in the, with the force of it. Um, but also pointing out that there's this kind of kill switch. So if Bond does want to stop, he can just let go of this button. The chicken and switch. Chicken switch, yeah. And um, just as he's about to start, Goodhead gets distracted. You get, what was his name? Did you say what his name was, the, the henchman? Uh, I I never picked it up. Uh, it oh. says here Chang, but pronounced Cha. I don't ever remember hearing Cha. Cha. Okay, I'm going to say Chang because I'm going to remember that. 
Yeah, um, I, I don't ever remember hearing char unless I'm just saying it in a too British way. <laughs> it's not pronounced char. <laughs> char! <laughs> uh, yeah, Chang comes and distracts um, Dr. Goodhead and says it's got a phone call. So they start the machine, kind of kind of a bit reckless, really, leaving Bond alone with it. But she off she goes and the machine starts. Well, I can't remember if the machine starts going before or after Chang then goes and takes over the controls. But any, at any rate... Bond's going on the machine and Chang comes in and actually takes over the controls of it, like further back up in this room. And obviously what's going to happen, uh, he slowly ramps up the speed of the centrifuge and you get this little action scene. I say action scene because it's just a thing going around in a circle. But uh, I think it's quite good, this little scene, going faster and faster. You get these really, really unflattering shots of Roger Moore where they're simulating the G-force increasing and like they've clearly just got like this big fan blowing air on him to wrinkle his skin and i really like that they went all in with this like any you might think that other actors will be like no i don't want to look bad on screen but they're like no you are gonna look you're gonna look ugly like we're gonna we're gonna make you look the most unflattering as your as your skin flaps on the big screen and it really adds to the fact that it really adds to the feeling of bond is in real danger here as as you see all the controls going up, like the G-Force is creeping up to 20 and Bond's eyes bulging out of, the, out of his head. Um, the sound effect as well, I really like to this, where you get the, the uh, spinning around of the centrifuge and getting louder and louder and faster and faster. Uh, it's, a really, it's a really cool little scene. And you, know, you, get, you get Bond trying to, on the edge of passing out, you can see like, yeah, he's not doing too well. Um, it does cut one, one way uh, at one point cuts away to Dr. Goodhead on the phone and it's a nice little red herring because you, you hear her say like oh yeah no we're taking we're taking care of Bond alright and you know thinking ah oh, she's in on it like she's she's evil she's she's done this to trap Bond but you, know, you actually later find out that no she's just she's actually being genuine like no they're taking care of Bond um, so a nice little red herring there Uh Eventually, Bond does get out, though. He uses his dart gun um, to to shoot the controls because obviously the chicken switch didn't work. Um, so, yeah, he uses his dart gun, which he still has on, and shoots the controls, which stops the machine. Uh, with a little bit of editing, I think we... What was it previously? We, we, we kind of noted that there was a bit of editing involved, which wasn't typical for Bond films at this time. For this film? No, for, it was a previous Bond film, but they had, like... They did some cutting, which which worked quite well. For the life of me, I can't remember what it is now. But um, they kind of do a bit more here in terms of they have this, like, flashbacks showing Bond shooting the dark gun at the painting in M's office. and Oh, I see. That's Diamonds Are Forever you're thinking of. Is it? What bit is it in there? Where they have the guy explaining what's going on and then they oh, show yeah. the footage of the operation. Yes, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, just a bit more kind of editing that you don't really see very often in Bond films where showing Bond remembering the dark gun and yeah, he does shoot it and, and eventually uh, stops the, the centrifuge. Goodhead comes back, gets him out. Oh, I don't know what happened. Oh, how could, how could the machine have broke like this? And Roger Moore just looks like there's some great acting here. He looks <laughs> terrible. He gets out and his hair's all over the place and he's like falling against the wall he does look up and kind of clock the henchman at the controls, so it does set up that you know he's aware something's going on. But uh, overall, I, I really, I really like this scene. It's such a simple 
such a simple setup for a, uh, an action scene, but I think it was really well done. I will say this scene is better than it should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> because exactly. on paper, this should have just been another fundable get Sean on the back structure. Oh, not that bloody thing. Oh, my. And I just shake him that. around and be like, oh, no, he's being shaken too much. Goodness. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> like, on, on paper, this should have been another one of them. Um, but it's kind of, as you say, like, it's just very well put together in terms of building that tension. We we get the rules of how this works explained to us quite clearly about, about what G's we get. And then we see, like, numerous kind of indicators of things getting worse as it goes. We get the heart rate, as you said, and the this red bar filling up and we see how many G it is. And, yeah, that sound of it spinning going faster and faster, there's, like several indicators of this going quicker and quicker and quicker that keep building and building and building that it's just very smartly put together and it really builds that kind of tension and kind of sucks you in i i'm still not a massive fan of it because it is so like so unnecessary <laughs> in the grand scheme of things it's just like bond get in this thing for no reason okie doke oh that was horrible <laughs> all right anyway <laughs> moving on moving on but uh i mean it makes sense for this film like there's other stuff i would cut from this film before i would cut this because i think this is still effective in a vacuum and it is kind of a better version of that fundable scene that we saw at the beginning of that film and that is this how this did it is probably what they were going for back then they just didn't put it off where this one is actually a lot more effective yeah i mean it's a good use of the theme like the thematic you know uh, space shuttle astronaut they I, I could just see him thinking oh, centrifuge bond gets trapped in it amazing like that that in itself is just a cool idea and it was it was smart of them to include it in this film which does you know it does toe the line with uh, it, go, it crosses the line completely in terms of uh science later on but i mean this is a, a clever use of an actual piece of tech so i think it was good yeah i think it's good it is also one of those that you do completely forget about though <laughs> Like, considering where this film goes and all the other scenes, this is one that I think you can quite easily forget. It's very early on and we have a lot to get through. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so speaking of that, so we then cut to uh, Roger later at night, still on the same estate, and he enters the room and we see the, the pilot from before doing her hair. What was her name again? Corrine. Uh, Corrine. Uh, so we see Corrine doing her hair and, and basically Bond walks into the room and goes in for a kiss. <laughs> oh, yeah. And starts putting on the old moves. She's initially not really into it, but then Bond gets a bit confused. And then they do actually kiss. Uh, so there's a little bit of back and forth here. I can't really remember it. Um, there's not too much that kind of happens. Bond is seducing her, uh, but his real goal is to kind of get information he wants to know what's really going on here. And she eventually says, after some more kissing and seducing and stuff, like, oh, there's something that was being worked on in secret, but that's been moved. Although I don't know where where it got moved to. And mm. then, as part of this, she starts talking about, like, things I should never do. My mother gave me a list of things I, I shouldn't do. Um, but eventually Bond wears her down. And then he's like, what about that list of your mother's? Of which she replies, "I never learned to read." <laughs> what? What are you? What you're? What, what are you on about? I, I oh, yeah. What? <laughs> I know it's supposed to be like a, I don't know, a 
sexy, sexy funny yeah. line i guess like it's it's not supposed to be taken literally but it just sounds so stupid an adult woman saying i never learned to read <laughs> does drax <that's>, know this <laughs> yeah that's just kind of a bit sad if anything it's like who's turned on by that bond it's like, oh, never learned to read, eh? <laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> it's, yeah, like, oh, it's, it's, just... it's a crap line. It's such a bad bit of dialogue. Yeah, like, I, I don't really mind this actress and this character. I think it's all okay. Like, she serves her purpose, and I think as an actress, she's kind of better than some other people we've seen in the past, but they just don't really... They're just not very good, these scenes with Roger seducing women. Like, really I don't not. know if it's Roger or the writing or both, but... None of these really seem to kind of... They're not that convincing for me. I haven't really seen many of Roger's scenes doing this where I'm kind of convinced that, that it would go this way. This is one of the great examples of of a scene between Bond and a woman where Bond tries it on, the woman goes, no. Bond goes, yes. And then the mm-hmm. woman goes, okay then. <laughs> it's like, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything to, to try and persuade her. What? Why? No, it's not. It's not clear at all. He didn't even call her darling, which is normally. Oh, the ace was there any darlings in this? Oh, there was. Yeah. Okay, there was. Yeah, good. I, I, I don't I think we're going to get any film where he doesn't say darling. It's definitely been toned down, but he gets one in. Okay, of course. He calls Q darling later. <laughs> calls M darling later on. Yeah. Oh, I hope I haven't said that joke before. I feel like I might have done. Oh no, am I as bad as these films? repeating jokes we've got a lot of these to get through i think it's fair if we repeat some jokes yeah i mean we've been talking about bond for how many hours at this point like 20 (laughs) too many (laughs) (laughs) some some would say too many there's still another 20 though see how we go yeah but anyway so yeah so they're kissing and they're in bed and we see the the japanese henchman looking all shifty walking around being all shifty like which did kind of make me laugh a little, but this guy just looks so ridiculous with his haircut and his general look um, that he just is—he just looks so—he just looks like a cartoon character um, for most of this. Are you still thinking of the Beatles? Are you still thinking it looks like a Beatles? I might be, yeah. <laughs> but it's in like traditional Japanese gear, which is like fine. But he's in like an est- a French estate in California which is a national training program. So he just stands out so much and so deliberately, which is probably the old format of a henchman needs to visually stand out. Yeah. Um, But this one is one that doesn't really work because it's so kind of cartoonish, but just also not very memorable. Like no one's thinking like, oh yeah, how was the henchman in in Moonraker? Everyone's going to say Jaws, not Chang, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, poor guy. Poor Chang. Yeah, he can't compete with Jaws, sorry. No, he tries. But Bond gets out of bed, so after successfully seducing the pilot, gets out of bed and goes to explore and look around and see if he can find anything about uh, this secret project that was moved. Of which he eventually finds a desk, goes through a load of documents, and then the pilot shows up, goes through the door and meets up and is like, ah, you shouldn't be in here, this is bad. Of which I really like this moment where Bond says, is there a safe in here? She looks over and Bond just says, thank you. And just <laughs> yeah. goes over to that spot. Yeah, a nice little quick, quick bit there. I like that. It's another one of those small moments where it's just Bond being a smart spy, manipulating her yeah. to show her 
it's and it's very quick as well something we don't see as often in this era hmm and yeah it's a, it's a clock is what she was looking at so bond fiddles with a clock face and that then goes up and a safe appears underneath and we get another twist on the old safe cracking uh, that we've seen quite a few times i didn't realize how often bond has a different gadget for safe cracking same he has a lot this is like the fourth or fifth we might have seen yeah yeah so this time it's his cigarette case of which he then puts it in front of the safe opens it up and it's like an x-ray scan of the lock i believe yeah i didn't quite buy that like i didn't buy that it was actually scanning it (laughs) i thought it was doing something else it's a powerful little x-ray that he's got there yeah yeah, and yeah, and because it's scanned inside the lock and there's like this electronic stuff as well and he then is able to see where he needs to put in the combination and eventually it clicks and the numbers work and there we go and the safe opens and he, he gets the paper. Off which he then takes this cigarette case, which has an X-ray scanner, radiation and the like, points it at her chest and it's like, there, there you see, you have a heart of gold. It's like, Bond, no! <laughs> Don't... <laughs> Don't scan somebody's chest with an x-ray. That's messed up. You can't do that. Uh, she's going to die soon anyway. It's fine. Yeah, well, he knew. <laughs> he was like, she's probably not got long. They never <laughs> normally do. No, she slept with me, so that's it now. <laughs> yeah, because at this point, it's this character's a little bit odd. Because, again, I don't really dislike her, but it's she's now very kind of friendly towards Bond. It's like they had no relationship or anything. She was just the pilot. To Bond just kind of going into the room... And then to seducing her, and now she's just like, yeah, they're just kind of quite pally, and it's just she's just helping him out outright, like not even questioning it, not even thinking about it. She's just with Bond helping him. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It 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 does just turn very strange this relationship. Yeah, when he says like heart of gold, and she's like eighteen carat, and then they say take care of yourself, as if it's like yeah, like two good friends, or it's like they they they've just made each other. They don't know each other. Why is she doing yeah, this? Yeah, because Bond gives a genuine thank you to her and kisses her. Like, yeah. it's the most genuine I've ever seen Bond act towards a woman in any of these films. But it's like, it's just... <laughs> just why? <laughs> why are they being nice girl? Who knows? It's all odd, but... Uh, to wrap up this scene, Bond uh, gets his little 007 mini camera out. I don't think this is the first time we've seen this. Like, we've seen cameras in the past, but this might be the first time we've seen it with 007 written on the front. I like that. I like that. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. For it. Well, it makes more sense than, like, the tarot cards having 007 from Live and Let Die, at least. I, yeah, I buy that James Bond is fain enough that he would want the camera to have 007 written on yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and he takes uh, pictures of all the blueprints. So inside the safe, it's a load of spacecraft blueprints or showing the shuttles. I don't think Bond sees anything off with them. He just knows they're important. So he lays them all out, uses his little spy 007 camera, takes a load of pictures. They then give a genuine thank you and goodbye and kiss and leave. And we see that the Japanese henchman Chang is watching nearby, being very creepy um, as they both then leave the office. So he knows that they were in there. Yeah. Yeah, I've I got to say, this this whole scene with Corrine, I, it was just, it wasn't necessarily bad. I just felt it was weird. Just a very, we've kind of been through it, but yeah, just very weird vibes between the two. I couldn't quite put my finger on these two characters because it's not as if it's like previous scenes with Bond and, and not the Bond girl and the one that usually ends up dying, where it's just, you could say, it's just 
outright bad or or good. This is just it's just weird. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I can put my finger on it. I think it doesn't help that considering where this film goes, it feels really weird to be now talking about these early scenes. Like they're so irrelevant compared to what happens later in the film to be even talking about Kareem. It's like, no, she was in a different film, right? That's not Moonraker. (laughs) (laughs) Moonraker just has such a different, like you, where it ends up compared to where it starts is so vastly different that it's just weird talking about these scenes like this and this character who just kind of has no impact on the film after the first like half an hour. Yeah. Poor Kareem. Poor Justice for Kareem. I'm afraid that's not gonna that's not gonna go very far, because um, the next scene, uh, you get Bond, who's about to leave. He's done now. He's got his he's taken his photos. He's about to leave the estate, um, so he's been driven to say goodbye to Drax, who is doing some uh, pheasant shooting uh, out in the in the fields or like the clearing, um, and you get some shots of like yeah, the uh, probably actual pheasants being shot. I'm sure you know we know what the <laughs> the animal uh, stuff is like with these Bond films. Um, and everyone everyone in their like fancy-looking shooting outfits and Drax has got a little feather in his cap and everything and he's got these big shotguns. And Bond drives up uh, or gets driven up and, and is about to say bye to Drax and thank him for his uh, generosity. But not before Drax says, hey, come on, come on, Bond, let's have a little, let's have a little go. I'm sure you're a good shot. Have a, have a go on, uh, on uh, shooting some birds. Uh, before this, though, I should say that Drax did, as he saw Bond coming, he did um, kind of gesture to one of his his henchmen to go and go up a tree. So you definitely know something's going on. There's this guy with a with a uh, rifle climbing up a tree nearby. So yeah, Bond is there and he's he's uh, got his gun ready to shoot a, a pheasant. They um, I don't know if there's anything else. I think I just got on with it. But yeah. Bond is there, uh, and then suddenly all these birds get spooked, and, and Drax says, oh, now's your shot, take it. So you see Bond kind of aiming, getting ready to aim, and following the birds. You get shots, POV shots of the guy in the tree with his targets right on Bond. And Bond just completely, like, he, he doesn't bother shooting the birds. You see him keep turning, keep turning, keep turning. Uh, and shoot like really off far away and Drax is very very you know wants to rub it in straight away you missed Mr Bond and you get the nice little line from Bond saying did I and the guy in the tree falls down which is it's a really I think we've said this for so many scenes now but it's like a really quick scene but it is a it's a cool scene you know it's one of those scenes where it's like yeah you go Bond it's like just a bit smarmy and and uh yeah you um you get Bond leaving and and thanking Drax, who's obviously very angry, uh, and he gets driven away. Then well, you get... Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, I will just say about that scene that I also really like it, that nice little moment of, you know, I did say there's not a big relationship between the two, and I still kind of stand by that, but this is this is as close as you kind of get, and it is a cool moment. Like, it's, it's that Goldfinger golf scene condensed down to be much quicker and more effective. Mm. Where it's two men against each other competing in a very oh, very posh and proper sporting event. Very good. Um, but I will say that seeing a load of posh blokes with like dogs shooting pheasants, I was just like, screw all these people. <laughs> <laughs> it took me out of it seeing that because I'm just like, well, I hate everything that I'm seeing here. 
Um, and that's a personal thing. Of course, it's not that big of a deal, but it took me out of it. Like seeing a load of like birds actually get killed. It's like the shark again, right? Like actually just seeing a load of animals die on screen. is just a bit of a bummer. So didn't really enjoy the beginning of this scene, but I do like that moment of Bond shooting the guy out of the tree and, and being a bit smug about it. Yeah, very, very suave, very suave. Uh, after Bond's left, you see um, Corrine turns up. She's in this little golf cart thing. She comes up. And basically, it's it's, it's that she got caught. Uh, she talked to Drax, and Drax says, you were in my study last night. You were helping Bond. Uh, consider your employment terminated. and Go pack your bag sort of thing. And uh, so she's obviously looking a bit sad, walks off. And as she's walking away, Drax gestures to Chang to let the two dogs that we've seen, the two very well-trained dogs who were currently, they were on leashes, and he lets them go. Uh, to go chase after Corrine. And you get this chase scene through the forest where she you know, she eventually realises these dogs behind her. So she goes from a walk to a, a jog and then a sprint, kind of racing and running for her life. And you get these shots of the dogs chasing after her. And it, this it's kind of... Uh, I really like this scene because... Mainly because it's shot, really, it's shot quite beautifully in a way because you get the shots of the forest and... You're getting, yeah, scenes of Corrine running for her life, desperate, tripping over branches and things like that. Meanwhile, you're getting these lovely shots of the forest with like sun rays coming through and it looks very tranquil. And then obviously it's juxtaposed with what's actually happening on screen where this woman is about to get eaten by dogs and, and killed, like attacked and killed. And it's, you know, the music as it builds up slowly and, and eventually turns into this, yeah, kind of really dramatic chase and the dogs chasing it's and it's ultimately just sad like it is actually just a sad scene because she really hasn't done much like we, we've seen this character she's seems pleasant enough and then yep before you know it dead and the thing i think really made me think about this like what this character made me think about was the fact that in this film in particular and it's a thing that's in bond films like most of them but the idea of like who bond Bond's victims in his wake, like not necessarily the bad guys either, just anyone that gets in contact with Bond, usually not a good end for them. And with this one, especially, there's just people that Bond comes across, gets involved with, he moves on, and they die. <laughs> and it's like, I felt, I just felt a bit bad for her. Well, it's weird because we didn't have, we had, we've seen this before. Um, like we've seen basically everything we've seen up to this point we have seen a version of before so they are just trying to do something different with each of these but yeah with this woman like yes bond has encountered women and had them be killed as we saw with goldfinger uh, but in the last film with stromberg we saw the same thing with this where he kills that woman with the shark and we get that big build up of the shark coming over and the music and stuff so we got another version of that but that was someone who like kind of deserved it because well not deserved to be eaten by a shark but <laughs> you got where he was coming from like she was working with them and like sold something and completely betrayed uh she wasn't seduced or anything she just probably did it for the money so he's now taking revenge on it and it's quite harsh revenge and even back in the specter days when it was blowfeld it was like yes these people that he is killing have messed up probably shouldn't you know, it probably doesn't deserve a severance package. Maybe just a firing. <laughs> probably doesn't deserve to be eaten like this with, by piranhas. 
sure. Uh, but it was like, you know, it felt more like actions having consequences for the villains. But you're right, with this one, it's more like she was kind of tricked by Bond in a way, and then she 100% pays the price where Bond is absolutely fine. And there probably is a time where it's happened up to this point in the same way, but you don't feel it as much as you feel it in this one, because, yeah, you get that slow piano music and this quite kind of haunting scene where the scene of this is shot like like we've never seen a a scene like this like even john barry's score he has never written like a piano piece that builds up this way at all uh but we get it for this one and the woman running through so it took me a little bit out of it that this is such a cliche at this point like i've just seen it so often you know the the woman or the person goes running off and is chased by dogs like i feel like it's happened a lot but yeah this one really kind of stands out and and i would agree there is something about the way they've framed this that even though it's similar to stuff we've seen before where person innocent person gets killed they don't really kind of give that same justification that they would do back during blofeld or the previous roger moore films yeah yeah it's weird i almost got when i was watching that i got vibes of it's completely unrelated in terms of Bond, but Doctor Who, there's always a thing about the Doctor Who character, about how everyone he gets involved with usually meet a grisly end and, you know, un- undeserved. I'm like, oh, yeah, Bond, Bond is a similar character where pe- he just gets ta- people get tangled up and he's fine and, and they suffer. So, And I, I like that. I do like that. It gives a bit more depth to the character and, and the plots. I mean, it's it's nothing crazy, right? It just, just dies, but it's it's definitely something else to think about in the Bond film, which is which is nice. Well, there's also at this point no self-awareness of it, right? Like later down the line, they're more aware that this happens and kind of play on your expectations with that a little bit. I feel like with this film, they just haven't really reached that point yet. Like it is just an innocent person kind of just getting killed because they got involved with Bond and that's kind of it. Like they move on like yeah. after this point. Yeah. Um, but later on, they, they kind of refer to it for better or for worse, you could say. Uh, but this one is just kind of like, yep, she died horribly. Uh, here's some nice piano and some nice god rays and oh i wonder what bond's up to italy haha what a hoot <laughs> yeah yeah you're right thinking about it like uh, i can't remember the character's name but tomorrow never dies has someone like this and obviously strawberry fields is kind of like this so we'll get to them and you're right they are taken a lot more at, as the emotive level of it and bond's feelings of that so we're getting there folks but this is early days Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, so Bond is now in Italy. We cut to a, a bell. So as she goes down with the dogs, the camera pans up. Uh, the dogs are clearly not attacking her. They're just too lovely. Like, <laughs> you really like those dogs. <laughs> they're just nice dogs. Like I'm not a dog person, but when I see a nice dog, uh, I can't judge. Um, but so yeah, as she goes down, you hear some big bells ringing, and it then cuts to a bell ringing in in this big square. And Bond shows up to this kind of small dock or harbour on this kind of very Italian-looking boat because he's in Italy. Uh, Venice, I think, specifically, is where mm-hmm. he is. I believe... Uh, do you remember why he's in Italy or how he makes that connection? It's on the the documents he took out the safe in the study. It had, like, Vanini Venice glass on one of the blueprints. Ah, yes. That is something they actually do a good... Like, even, though, even though I didn't remember that, uh, this is actually they they do a good job with this because he jumps around a lot but they do kind of very smartly explain why because i think he arrives doesn't he check the blueprint sees that it says like Fenny glass on it looks mm. up and sees that same name and it's like right i got it that makes yeah. sense yeah but it makes it nice and clear like right next to each other like they're holding up the bit of the photo yeah 
But there's other instances as well. Like at no point did I find too lost. There's one instance I was very lost to why he was there. Uh, but they do kind of they've kind of mastered that sort of like right. We need to get an explanation in without just having a ton. Like this is not like on a Majesty Secret Service where like, oh George Lazenby's going yeah. on about the college and heritage and it's just zooming in on a college in London. You're just like oh what okay. They've <laughs> simplified that. Yeah yeah yeah. So then Bond walks into the, this glass place and it's another young woman. Uh, there, there is a reason for this. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I feel like they didn't think, right, we've come up with this story. So that means there has to be young, attractive people around. No, no, no. They almost certainly was like, right, let's have a look. We're going to have a, Yoda, a load of young, attractive people here. Let's make sure the story fits with it. <laughs> Possibly. I, will, I wouldn't be surprised. So yeah, he walks in and there's another young woman and I think she says like, oh, can I help you? And or like, do you see anything you like? It's it's one of them. And Bond's like, I'm tempted to say yes immediately. I, I can't remember the setup. It's, I think that's it. I think it's spot on. Yeah, it's just another, another one of them. Uh, so Bond starts looking around. So this is kind of more of a shop museum kind of place. And yeah, he's he's allowed to go in the back, apparently. She doesn't care. She just lets him go around the back. And he sees this like smeltering place, a furnace. Not too sure what you call it, but somewhere where they're blowing glass uh, to make glass containers. And he finds the container from the blueprint. There's a, I want to say, hexagon um, shaped mm. container. And yeah. we then cut to a woman nearby giving a, a tour uh, to this glass place. Uh, a big, a big group of tourists, and she's saying like, "Oh, look at these! Look how expensive this is." And there's a bowl there, and she picks up the bowl and saying it's super expensive. And when she picks it up, it beeps, so she puts it down, and they all have a bit of a laugh. And Bond kind of watches them, and he sees Doctor Goodhead in that group of tourists. Yeah, yeah, it's just just a uh, good timing, eh? Yeah, it seems to be. Holly gets around, I guess. Mm. So Bond sees her, and she then walks off and leaves the the glass place of any glass so bond follows her down the street she eventually stops near this canal looking at this building so bond just stands next to her and it's like hmm, 14th century i believe <laughs> <laughs> she just looks and it's just like oh <laughs> She's not uh, and we get this is what i don't get with roger moore's era of bond girls where he is so horrible and condescending to them for so long and you're supposed to suddenly buy that they fall into each other's arms like I think The Spy Who Loved Me did it very well because they're rivals, right? Like, they're both rivals and it's kind of a somewhat friendly competition. So, she, like, he's being rude to her, but she's also doing the same to him. So there's this very real back and forth which helps develop the chemistry. But in the other ones, including this one, he's just, like, so condescending and horrible. So in this scene, like, Bond is like, well, what are you doing here? And she's like, oh, I have this cinema... cinema uh, yeah, I have this thing that i got to give... Um, something to do with NASA and space. Uh, and then Bond's like, oh, I keep forgetting you're more than just a beautiful woman. It's like, what, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what a are woman. you doing? <laughs> uh, and then he's like, let's go to go to dinner. <laughs> She's like, I'm busy. I'm working here. <laughs> I'm working here. She's like, i got to go give my address. Like, I'm here for work. And he's like, oh, maybe a drink afterwards then. I can't see a reason why you'd say no to that. Because <laughs> you're an ass. That's probably... Take the hint. Take the hint, Bond. <laughs> it's just like, but it's two scenes in a row where, like, the first one you said, like, 
he is just very condescending towards her because she's a woman, like a beautiful woman who's meant to be smart. And he's like, oh, and just makes all his comment and tries to show off his knowledge. And then he just does it again. And she is quite hostile towards him, rightly so. But this is all supposed to be like, she's the Bond girl. And at this point, it was like, okay, well, I know she's the Bond girl, but that's really weird if she is the Bond girl because he's just kind of horrible to her and she's just horrible back. Like, why would I ever buy that these two are just going to fall for each other? And they give a reason, but it's just super weak. And I don't really dislike the actress here, but I can't say I, I think much of a Dr. Goody. Goody? Uh, mm-hmm. Holly Goodhead overall. Yeah, yeah. I, it's almost like this is still meant to be flirtatious bickering, right? You know, the back and forth and just a, a quip and a response for everything. Because when, when Bond does say, oh, you know, drinks then? I can't think of a reason. She says, I'm sure I'll think of one. Um, but you're right. Yeah, I, I don't I don't love I don't love this dynamic. And it's mainly because of Roger Moore, like the Bond in this film. I've got to say, I mean, I'm kind of jumping ahead. But for this whole film, I do find Bond just to be quite unlikable throughout this, uh, which is a shame because this is the first time I've really felt that in the Roger Moore film so far. And it's just just the attitude he has throughout most of this. I just don't really like it. And this is one of those those scenes, you know, where it's really evident. Yeah, he's just trying to do that same routine we saw in all the other films. But I think the setting and the characters that he's paired with and the fact that we've seen it in three films now. We're on film number four of the Roger Moore era. That feels weird to say. Um, but we've seen him quite a lot now at this point. And yeah, the, the, it just doesn't work in the same way that it did. The, his knowledge and his jokes and stuff, they're all just kind of a little bit off. And with the type of Bond that he is, when they're off, as you say, it just makes him unlikable. Mm. So I don't hate Bond in this film, but it's still like so many of these scenes where he's just interacting with actual human beings and he just doesn't come across <laughs> as like a likable human being. No, not at all. He's in his own world. Yeah. Yeah. So the scene uh, ends with Goodhead and Bond kind of like left on a bit of a question about, oh, drinks, yeah, maybe, whatever sort of thing. And it then just really randomly cuts to Bond having a nice um, ride down the canals uh, in a gondola, right? It's just, yeah, he's on, he's meant to be, um, he's meant to be there just chilling. I guess he's on a bit of a holiday as well, you know, why not? Uh, enjoy Venice while you're there. So maybe just passing the time. But uh, he's there and it's just, yeah, he's he's going down a canal and having a great time. Then spots this funeral boat. I don't really know. I guess that's what it is. I mean, it's a, it's a boat with a coffin on the top. Yeah. And <laughs> God, this whole scene, man. Uh, the coffin opens and a man lifts like... Uh, comes out of it like Dracula <laughs> and all of these knives are on the lid on the insides of the lid and this little knife contraption extends out which lets the man grab a knife and try to throw it at Bond or at least I don't know if he tries to throw it at Bond first but he hits the what are they called those people have they got a I'm name? I'm not too sure what the guy with the big sticks yeah the ones the that the ones that sing with the big sticks and the, the little hats anyway he stabs him, gets him with a knife first, which gives Bond a chance to, you know, react and, and then carry on with what turns out to be another boat chase. They really did love their boat chases with Roger Moore. Um, 
through the the canals and rivers of uh, Venice. And did he? Oh, he gra- yeah, that's right. He grabs the knife that he threw and and throws it back at the guy in the coffin. So that's how he gets rid of him. And then activates some sort of gadget on the gondola that he was on. Because, yeah, it turns out that this isn't just like one for hire. This is a, a gadgetized gondola. Must have been straight from Q and Q branch because it has like a like it has a jet bait, uh, uh, not a jet, but um, like a motor. So he can start driving it with a, a steering wheel. And yeah, we get a bit of a chase. Uh, the other boat um, crashes into a, a bridge because it's too high. And then you get just two other goons. I don't know where they come from. I can't remember now. But they, you get some other goons on another boat chasing after Bond shooting. Um, so he's using things like he's got like a... Has he got like a bullet thing at the back, that bullet shield? I don't know. Yeah, he's got something like that. He just does flipping switches and stuff happens. I can't really remember any of the gadgets apart from the obvious one. Does he, does he actually do anything with the boat whilst he's getting away? I don't. Know. I don't think so. Like, There's no like jets of something or mines. Can you imagine mines in the middle of Venice? Um, no, I think he just drives drives off and there's a bit like there's a bit of a gag where breaks through this couple that are on a, another um, gondola and they're kissing and like just gets completely ripped in half, which they've done that joke before, I think, in Live and Let Die. Uh, no, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, but yeah, like they start sinking without even realising it. It's just a bit of a visual gag like that. And you eventually get to Bond uh, at St. Mark's Square. So very big, famous place in Venice, very big touristy place, tons of people. And what's he going to do? He's, he's reached there. How is he going to escape these two guys behind him on the boat? Well, that's when you, you use the trusty gondola hoverboat technology that Q has geniusly invented. He flips a switch and, yeah, the gondola turns into the bondola, as people call it. <laughs> that's <laughs> as, pretty good, actually. As good. it turns into a hovercraft and he it's kind of a similar thing to the Lotus, except in reverse, right? Like, yeah, and, and goes on to land. And you just see these shots of of Bond driving through the middle of St. Mark's Square. And just like with the beach scene in The Spy Who Loved Me, you've got to have some great reaction shots, right? You've got to have some what? And you get loads in this one. I even wrote down all the ones you get. So you get an artist who is painting, but then like the easel gets knocked over and he's still there painting because he's like so distracted. You get a waiter who is pouring a drink who is distracted, so he ends up pouring the drink all over the guy. You get the good old man with a bottle of wine. He returns, the same actor, doing a double take at the wine, like, oh, what am I drinking, sort of thing. And, best of all, you get a double-taking pigeon, finally. (laughs) Don't groan at the double-taking pigeon, Tom. Oh, don't... Don't, don't defend the double taking pigeon. No, don't worry. I'm not going to. It's bad. It's just bad. <laughs> so I, I, just before I, I oh, just, so the the canal scene before this, I thought was a bit whatever. Like just to cover that, it's a really short boat chase. It's so whatever. Like I get it. You're in Venice, so you're going to like have this sort of chase scene, but it kind of goes to a problem that I have with this film, where it jumps between locations a lot like more than any other film at this point it's all about bond goes somewhere and then does a set piece go somewhere else does a set piece go somewhere does a set piece that's the entire film and then the last one is goes to space and does a set piece 
Yeah. Um, so this one feels extremely unearned because he just goes to Venice and because he's in Venice, he's going to have a, a boat chase in the canals. But because it is like such a sacred area, like it is an old town, you're not going to blow stuff up, like you said. So it's just like, whatever, like just cut it out. I don't care. Um, now back to this one with the double taken pigeon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As we talk about it, I like it more and more, but it was nothing but groans and being annoyed when watching it. Like, I like the idea of it existing. I just don't want to watch it. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that this exists in a Bond film, but I didn't watch it and it did. Like, I didn't watch it and laugh. Um, but this yeah. is like so stupid. It is. I mean, it, it was even a bit too stupid for me. I think you hit the nail on the head there where it's, it's just unearned. Like the thing that really stood out to me watching this, this chase scene again was not the double taken pigeon because I knew that was coming and I was quite looking forward to it. But um, it was just the fact that it, it, it does just plonk Bond, like scene cuts with him and Goodhead, and then he's just in a boat. And it's like, that is purely so they can have this silly little scene. If it was at least vaguely tied into a bit more and, and, and flowed better in the story, I wouldn't have minded as much. But it, it's just, yeah, lazy. It's really, really lazy. And obviously you can't make a pigeon do a double take, so that it was this really clumsy edited thing and it's just it's just naff the whole scene's pretty naff to be honest it's like what slow down and rewound because it's supposed to be the pigeon like blinking a few times yeah but pigeons move their head weird because they're pigeons so they had to like change it it's like oh, who in the editing room was like come on guys let's get this done and the crazy thing is the editor is like the director for the next like five films <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, like, right, that was yeah. a hell of a pigeon scene mate here's a five film contract get it done yeah i'm not sure how that made it. i mean it is quite infamous in like the bond fandom about the double taken pigeon for good reason um i will say though i have got the only bit of like bond art that i've got oh, is no. it's a it's a really nice like it's a really nice painting that someone did or a print of a painting someone did in, in watercolor style but it is of this actual it's of this very scene where where bond is in saint mark square and there's pigeons flying everywhere so it's a shame that it's it's linked to this but i do it's a nice little print so yeah it just reminds me of the double taking pigeon now. That that does sound nice. It is nice. I have to post a picture somewhere, but it's very nice. Yeah, I, I just don't know what to say about this one because it's like it's just not funny and and that's what it comes down to. Like I think you're meant to laugh at like all the people reacting to Bond, considering they show about six, seven reactions of it. Yeah, yeah. But it's like no. Who is genuinely laughing? I was like, oh man, spills his drink because Bond's being a bit wacky. Like, oh, it's so bad. Uh, like, only kids would find this funny. And even then, I'm not too sure. Uh, because, like, you can get some humour from these scenes. I don't think this scene was doomed to fail. It's just let let it speak for itself a bit. Let Bond look ridiculous driving through this square in this little boat. That itself is kind of funny. Like... Not hilarious, but that itself is fine. You just don't need the rest of it. It's like him coming out of the ocean, like in Spy Who Loved Me. That in itself is kind of like a bit different and out there, and I kind of like that. Um, but this one, they try to do it again, but they went all in on the wrong elements. Although luckily they don't play the Bond theme, so at least there's that. <laughs> yeah, it was just a bit too much of, look, look at these people reacting, isn't it funny? And that one thing that just comes to mind, I think I wrote it at the end, uh, like when I'd finished watching this film but it's very evident in this scene it's like this is this film is the spy who loved me on steroids in some scenes it's like they just took what they thought was good and which arguably is good in the first one 
but they just sometimes they just go too far with it and this is one of those scenes where they just went too far yeah i mean it's the diamonds of a problem for me it's taking what goldfinger did and kind of amplifying the wrong things in some areas and i don't think moonraker is as wacky as diamonds are forever i i was reading about this film before this uh episode and i feel like some people say this is the silliest and stupidest bond film but to me i would still say diamonds are forever is dumber i guess it's just how you think about bond going into space like that for some people is just fundamentally too stupid to get into but i think outside of that i would say Diamonds Are Forever is still sillier. Like, an elephant winning the jackpot, I think, is still stupider <laughs> than a double-taking pigeon. Listen, just because you didn't like Blofeld in drag doesn't mean that everyone has to dislike it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but I did forget about the elephant winning. <laughs> can we get an edit of um, they when Tiffany gets in the car with Blofeld in drag? Can we just edit in the double-taking pigeon <laughs> reacting to Blofeld? <laughs> so much potential. Oh. Damn. Just put all the insanity together as one big edit. Overload, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so Bond gets away. And also, just to top it all off, the goons are all annoyed. So they're still on their boat watching Bond drive away in the square in his boat. And they're like, oh, blah, 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 like raising their fist. So then they drive away and the man raising his fist falls off the boat and it's like, oh no, it's... Ugh. Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Just a, just a little cherry, cherry on the top there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I won't say on top of what, but uh, <laughs> yeah. on top of something. Uh, so then we cut to at night, and Bond, for some reason, is wearing like the Italian hat, like the sun hat that the guys wear, for some reason, and takes it off and then throws it onto a post. There you go, you're happy, you've got your hat throw. Yeah, I, it's not what I wanted, oh. but it's what we got. Yeah, so yeah, so Bond is doing a hat throw for some reason. Uh, and he goes through this gate and into this like courtyard. So he is sneaking back into the glass place that he went earlier. I don't think it's really explained, but he saw that that operation was doing stuff for, for Drax and that he found the thing he was looking for. So he goes back at night to investigate, which also means you totally could have cut out the last scene because the reason he's here is because of that. So you totally could have gone from Dr. Goodhead to Bond sneaking in and it, you would miss nothing, mm-hmm, like absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah, but anyway, uh, so Bond is in all black, and this is the like quietest scene I think we've ever had in a Bond theme. I don't know if there was any sound coming from it as he was sneaking through, like no music, no nothing. I couldn't hear anything. Um, yeah, I, I can't really recall anything. Yeah, okay. I was just curious if it stood out to you because yes, we do have these quiet scenes before. That's nothing new. But normally you hear kind of something. But this is just like near silent. It was like almost a little bit uneasy for me because when you hear something that has no audio but should have audio, there's like a natural kind of unease that comes with that. And that kind of hit that level with me with this scene. Oh, so maybe it worked, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, it was a bit strange. So we see Bond enter inside the place and we haven't really talked about his dress sense for a couple of films. Uh, so far but man he looked bad in this so he's what? wearing all black but he has oh. like this this shirt but it has like a zip on the top and he's like zipped it down so he, you can see it like got this big v on top of his chest and with the fact that roger is starting to look a little bit older exposing his uh chest v as it were uh, was <laughs> not a look i was into i don't yeah i don't really 
I can't say anything really stood out to me in terms of looking bad, but then equally nothing really stood out in terms of looking good. So maybe that's worse actually. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, yeah, nothing yeah, nothing too bad. I think this looked bad just because again he's exposing his chest like that. Especially because he's like supposed to be stealth and spy and stuff. Like don't don't do that. Don't wear that. This is not like the classic look we saw in Live and Let Die. But yeah, yeah. so far it's all very similar with his suits. Although I think he does wear a tux later, which is nice. Mm. So he, Bond is going through this uh yeah, this facility and hides behind a door because he gets to a door with a no uh, keypad and he can't get through, so he hides through a door. Then he sees a scientist come through. He puts in the combination. Bond sees that happen, but also they play this little tune, like dun-dun-dun-dun, which I recognised, but I don't know if it originally comes from this film or not. I did not recognise it. Oh. What is it from? I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. oh, I thought you might. Okay, yeah, I don't know. I recognised it from, like, other media, which definitely would have probably come out after this. I always thought this was, like, Close Encounters of the... Like, or some, like something for, like that. I mean, it could be. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not too sure. I feel like this might be referencing something, because I can't imagine people would reference this tune elsewhere, because it's Moonraker. Like, you, <laughs> why would you do that? True. Yeah, and it seems like such a strange... Like, why would they put such a little tune in if they didn't want you to know there was a reference to something so yeah you're probably right i mean you hear it about three four times that's yeah. the thing like you don't yeah. just hear it once you hear it quite a bit it's nice it's a nice little song <laughs> one of john barry's best <laughs> <laughs> oh i actually yeah oh, anyway, that's that's later on yeah but yeah yeah we'll get there plenty of opportunities for john to have his day in the sun oh yeah uh, so yeah so bond sees the combination he goes in types it in gets in and he sees this kind of research facility here where it's something to do with rockets and there's these rocket arms filling up these canisters with liquid and bond is just watching these scientists or the scientists work on all this and the scientists eventually leave so he goes through this big door to go inside the main part of it uh, and takes one of the canisters basically he sees these liquids see this small canister he takes one takes a look at it and hides it and he then hears them come back, so he runs back around and hides again. Uh, and the Bond, because he was taking a look at these canisters, but didn't have time to put them away, he left some of them on the table nearby. So when Bond ran away, that was still there. When the scientists come back and don't know it's there, he they knock it over, and we see it smash, and then this gas comes out and... It's because it's a separate sealed room from Bond. Bond is okay, but we see both the scientists start choking and very fakely choking. They just kind of hold their necks and like, and just do that. <laughs> and eventually they fall on the floor, but they fall on the floor in sync, which I thought was just lovely. Like, completely took me out of it, but they both land on their knees and land on the floor at the exact same time and die at the same time. I did not spot that, but maybe they were just really good friends. I I like to think so. Friends till the nice. end. Yeah. And we also see some rats are in there, which they're making a lot of rat noises, which seem to be very much like imposed over the footage, but they're okay. That's important. I, I almost didn't say important because it's not actually important, but they reference it later. <laughs> like yeah, and really then matter. weirdly, they, they insert the shot of a double-taking rat... 
I don't know why they did that. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh, god. So, so yeah. So that, so that's it. That this seems fine. Like it's a bit slow, and that kind of like this film isn't as slow as say like a man with a golden gun or something like that. Like, but it doesn't quite have that same pacing that Spy Who Loved Me had at the beginning. Like, yes, Bond jumps around a lot. But we do get a few scenes like this where it's like, yes, there's a point to it and it's not terrible, but I, this felt a bit slow. Like it was Bond breaking in, watching, scientists leave, he goes in, he then goes out, then the scientists die and then, then the rats are there and, and that's kind of it. It's like, yeah, it's a, it's a spy scene, which is nice to see, but considering that this film is over two hours long... And like I already said, like it's weird talking about a scene like this when I already know where this film goes. Like this film's this scene seems so irrelevant in the grand scheme of things because it's clearly not the stuff you're going to remember or what's important about this film. Yeah, there, there is one shot that I did like though, um, where well, and it's it's kind of the thing that really made me start thinking about what I mentioned with Corrine and how Bond's involvement with her leads to her death. Same thing here, where. You could argue that I mean these scientists are maybe not as innocent because they are developing some very deadly gas, clearly, or like some sort of toxin. Uh, but it is because of Bond just going in there and messing up and leaving that vial on there that they do die. And then you get, right near the end of the scene, you get the shot kind of like looking in at Bond behind the glass. And you do get like the dead bodies in the reflection. I was like, oh, that's... If that was like kind of like overtly done on purpose to sort of show the people, the, the body count that Bond is racking up now with his involvement in this project. I mean, that's quite nice. It's definitely, you could tell there was a purpose to setting up the shot like that where you had the two bodies on the floor. Um, but you're right. It, it For what for what this scene is and basically telling you that, hey, there's some there's some nasty gas in this, in this plot, it did go on a bit long. Yeah, I didn't take the reflection as in them trying to relate it to Bond. I think they were just trying to hammer it home about like, Drax is doing something bad and Bond has found out about it. Like, it's more about Bond has realised that Drax is having some sort of scheme that is going to kill people. So showing the bodies and Bond is kind of like tying that together. Like, I don't think they were going for more that, like, connection to Bond and Bond being the one who caused it. I think it's more like Drax caused it and now Bond has to stop him. But Bond did cause it. (laughs) I mean, that's details. (laughs) I think I've given the film a bit too much credit, perhaps. Yeah, it, it was nice, but yeah, I think it's meant to be more towards Drax and oh, this Drax character is no good. He must be stopped. Mm, yeah. So after Bond has meddled with the scientists and got his little vial, which he's put in his pocket, uh, he's about to go leave the the complex outside and look who's there, look who attacks him. It's Chang. Chang's back um, in a kendo outfit. He's doing, he's got a stick, I think. I remember talking about Kendo before, so it must have come up in a previous Bond film. Probably you only live twice. Um, but yeah, so you get uh, you get a little fight scene now between Bond and Chang, who is doing his Kendo attacking and, and things like that. And this fight scene eventually leads into the place we saw earlier with the actual glass and where the lady was giving the tour. So you're getting all of these priceless valuable pieces of art and glass and vases and um uh, yeah all sorts of stuff 
And obviously with that comes the, the fact that you are going to get a lot of destruction. I mean, that's like, you know, bullet in a china shop type of thing. So you get uh, you get the two of them just like smashing into pretty much everything in this shop as they're fighting. Uh, Bond grabs a sword, which has, I think it was pointed out by the tour guide earlier, like a sword of a glass guard. And um, he uses that. And it's actually, it's quite nice to see Bond use a sword. I don't know if we've ever seen it before in a film so far not so far no yeah like actually bond using some sword fighting skills lunging and and um trying to take he actually like chops chops chang's uh kendo stick completely which is kind of cool and yeah when i was watching this i was like oh yeah that's that was a big reference in dying of the day must have been like this scene so yeah um you get some kind of cool uh you do get some cool lighting in here like it's quite dark and it does get a bit better and um later on when they they go up to like the, the clock bit but overall this whole scene in in the the glass bit at least for now is like pure i want to say it's good but mainly because it's like it's just fun seeing things destroyed on a very basic level it's like you want to you see this big glass shop you want to see it smashed up and it's like give the audience what they want type of deal. It's nothing crazy, nothing mind-blowing, nothing very smart. It's just, let's smash up this. Let's have a bit of action. And uh, yeah, so that's what happens. Uh, they eventually make their way up to this kind of upper level near um, near a clock face. Uh, on the way there, Bond spots a crate, which says something about Rio de Janeiro. So that's kind of like the, as, as you said earlier, they, they do make it clear why Bond then goes to the next areas, and that's this is the sign for the audience. Like big crate, big words on it, Rio de Janeiro. Okay, that's the next place to go to. Um, anyway, behind the clock face, the fight continues. You get this cool blue lighting, um, quite stylized lighting, I'd say, and it eventually ends with Bond kicking. I don't know if he kicks. I don't know how he does it, but he pushes Chang through the clock face. Uh, and just so happens to land on this this band at the bottom who's playing and singing and lands straight through head first through the the piano um with like a, a really cartoony like thwang sound and you get i can't even can't remember what film it's from is it casablanca oh the... oh no it ah oh, no maybe it is Oh, I, I I can see the scene in my head. Yeah. Anyway, Bond leans out the window, looks down and, and sees Chang through the piano and says, play it again, Sam. So there you go. Because, oh, it's a piano. <laughs> yeah. And instead of play it again, Sam, it's San because Japanese. Get it? Oh, does he say San? I, I think, thought he just said Sam. <laughs> I think he does say San. I had turned off subtitles by this point because they're too big on my Blu-ray and they were distracting me. But I'm pretty sure he does say play it again, Sam. Oh, okay. I missed that. I just heard it as Sam. Yeah, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a fine little fight scene. I think nothing crazy. This just goes back to the point I've already made, and I'm going to probably have to keep making it where it's like this in itself is fine, and what we're currently seeing is pretty standard Bond affair, really. A bit more silliness than normal, but we got a pretty good opening stunt, and you now Bond is going across the world investigating this guy. And this one in itself, I think in another Bond film, probably would do a lot better. But in Moonraker, and especially because, like, he's not in Venice for long, it just seems so, like, it just doesn't blend with the rest of the film all that well because of its kind of pacing and the way it jumps around. 
So yeah, you're right. It's fun to see them smash each other in a glass museum. But even that scene, it's like, there's no flow to it at all. It just feels like shots of like these two actors just, okay, well, we know we want to smash everything in the room. So I'm just going to throw you into it. (laughs) Down it goes. And just the floor getting absolutely covered in glass, and that's it. So it's like it's totally fine. It's just I feel like, and I'm probably going to make this point later as well. I feel like they should have just cut a space way sooner. And when you watch this film, the experience I had is that I know they're going to space, and I know a lot is going to happen there. So why am I watching Chang and Bond have a fight in a glass museum? Like it just doesn't mesh with the rest of the film. But by itself, it's fine. It's just I don't think it it works so much with the rest. Although I won't justify the him being stuck upside down in a piano. It just looks <laughs> completely ridiculous. I had the same feeling. What you were just saying, then, like just you know, get get on with the space bit. And I don't know what it is about the scenes in Venice. I really I, maybe it's just I like Venice. Like kind of the same thing when I was saying I just like Las Vegas, which is why I liked Diamonds Are Forever. I do like Venice, and I think. I don't mind these scenes. It's the scenes in Rio where I feel that way, where it's like, I just don't like, just move on. I don't care about this, these, these scenes. Like, we're going to get to them, obviously, but it's like, that's exactly the same way I feel, but just a little bit later on. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, this is definitely still quite early on in the film and everything does somewhat flow, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> it is weird that they pick Venice. Like he starts in California well he starts in africa i guess technically yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah starts in africa and then he goes to california and now he's in venice but then he goes to rio like it should have been venice or rio not venice and rio especially because there's like another location after rio which is it's just oh there's just too many like it just doesn't work so yeah i would have liked if they picked like rio probably would have been really cool to stick around for uh, especially because he went to italy in the last film we did see a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, they should have picked one and committed to it, not this split. And and one, just, just one last thing about the little fight scene is I love how they had to, because as I was watching this, before he gets into this fight scene with Chang, he puts puts a little vial from the lab in his in his breast pocket and very obviously put there like a close-up of it. And then you have this fight scene where it's like he's falling over all the time, right? He's getting hit, he's getting whacked. And you're there thinking, that vial is not going to survive this. And and they they knew they knew the audiences were going to think that they like called me out as I was watching because then they had this little insert shot of Bond checking the vial. It's like yep, still in one piece. Back in it goes. It's like that's a tough little bit of glass there. I thought they were setting up for him to just like throw it at yeah. Chang and kill him that way. Yeah, it yeah I thought so. It wouldn't work plot wise, but that's what I felt like they were going for. Mm. Instead, we get play it again, Sam. Play it again, Sam. Sam. <laughs> yeah something not very good that line but anyway so we then cut to dr goodhead and she's looking very fancy in a very nice looking white dress in her hotel room just kind of staring out of the balcony for a bit and she goes to turn on the lamp because for some reason she's on there she's in there without the lamp and someone grabs her hand and oh this bit (laughs) and then it she turns on the lamp and it's bond Oh, just sitting oh. there like a creep in the hotel room. I just love the sound that he makes. It's like a ah. Oh, it's a really awkward oh. little scream. Ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like Play he's back. shocked for some reason, and it's it's another one of these. Like it's another one. Like straight away, like 
on paper, I like the idea of Bond just being kind of a bit cheeky and playful and stuff. It just doesn't come across that way at all. And breaking into someone's hotel room and grabbing their hand. Like, no, Bond, no. He just really wants those drinks. Oh, well, he does have a problem. I think that's fair. That's true. Uh, so Bond explains that this, the the Japanese henchman or this this person tried to kill me. So because she's associated with Drax and he was associated with Drax... He basically asks her, like, hey, what's going on? What's going on with this lab? And as he kind of asks that, she doesn't really say much. So Bond then starts looking around the room and we get a few shots or a few kind of... This scene is then Bond finding all these different gadgets. So he picks up a pen, goes to use it and sees, oh, it's actually a syringe. And he's like, oh, I wouldn't want to get stabbed by that. And picks up the diary that she has and has a little read and, ah, there's a dart in it for stabbing Mm. people with the dart. Uh, and then Bond notices the champagne and he's like, ah, this is my brand. So <laughs> so you must have been expecting me, it seems. Yeah, I don't know if there was like a... I don't know if that was meant to be a gag with the whole... I might be like just filthy-minded, but like he says like, if it was a 69, you'd, you were expecting me. I'm like, come on, is that really the level we're at? Cause, or am I just seeing something that's not there? I just oh, really... I, I would took definitely that as a, believe it. But yeah. we have definitely seen him drink like the same champagne before. So I think it is actually a, like something from the other one. Okay, I thought they were just using the the like the vintage year as a bit of a double double entendre. They well. might also be doing that. Like they might totally also be doing that because 1969, I guess when was the first Roger Moore film? 73? 72? Yeah. So that back then that wouldn't have been vintage if he was drinking it then. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It, it probably was. But yeah, so he's he's going around and then she sprays herself with perfume, of course. Uh, Bond tries to spray one and it's a flamethrower. And lastly, he picks up a handbag and there's like a big receiver aerial coming out <laughs> of it. So eventually Bond says, ah, this is all standard CIA equipment. Which I don't really like that. I'll be honest. It's not a big deal. Very minor detail. But I like the idea that these wacky gadgets are like Bond's thing, or at least MI6 and Q's thing. I don't like the idea that the Americans are also developing all these wacky gadgets, like Bond's gadgets are just, and the style of the gadgets are just more standard spy gear in this world. I much prefer the idea that it's more grounded to 007 and it's kind of distinct to him i don't like the idea that the cia is just giving everyone all these kind of wacky and weird hidden gadgets like this oh i didn't even think about that but you are so right like that is that is it's not even a very conscious thing but yeah like that is meant to be q's little geekery like q likes making this weird stuff and it's like oh now we know there's like an american q somewhere doing all the same thing no no They could have had it where they had, like, one. Like, I wouldn't mind if it was just one of these, like the flamethrower or something. But they purposely have Bond go through, like, four or five of these gadgets and expose them to then tie to the CIA. And it's like, that's just a bit much. Like, that's Bond's thing. Don't... No Americans. Can't have it. (laughs) Quite right. You hear that? No Americans. (laughs) Where's my cucumber sandwich? (laughs) Afternoon tea for all. (laughs) Uh, so Bond then goes in for a kiss because <laughs> of course he does yeah. and they do kiss and 
I, I lost the plot a little bit with this dialogue, just did not pay attention. They're talking about something about pulling their resources together, and but I think they do actually sleep together in this instance. It's just, like, I think she hasn't, like, fallen for him. I don't take it as that. Like, it's like she's been exposed as a CIA agent by Bond, and there is kind of, like, a benefit to those them sleeping together, I guess, to try and exchange info. Because... Uh, Bond sees that she has plane tickets, but they're also saying how we don't trust each other. Like, I don't trust you, you don't trust me, trust. Oh, that's that's out of the question. Um, but they still kind of sleep together, but oh, I just didn't, didn't like this at all. Like, it's, I don't know if they're trying to replicate the Spy Who Loved Me sort of bit, where it's like two agents bouncing against each other and using each other a bit. But if it is, it's very rushed and just doesn't work uh, in the same way. Yeah. I actually kind of forgot that she was a CIA agent and I kind of don't like that they keep doing this. There's a lot of examples now where it's like, oh, actually, she's undercover again. I kind of get why they have to do it, but uh, it would have been nice if she was just a she was just a scientist that was like ended up being really good. You know what I mean? Um, and this whole scene, I mean, I'm kind of with you in that. I don't really remember much and I just remember kind of wanting to get through this scene. It reminded me a bit of the scenes of Corrine where it's just it's just clumsy awkward dialogue it doesn't flow there's no charm there's no chemistry just didn't like it no and also I should say that Goodhead also just doesn't have an arc in this film at all which doesn't help like a lot of previous Bond girls whether the arcs have worked or not is up for debate and some Bond girls get a mini arc some don't uh, Anya in the last film definitely did even if it wasn't handled too well at the end uh, Good Night definitely did not <laughs> <laughs> her arc was i have a butt let's see what happens um <laughs> good head is one that definitely doesn't get an arc at all she's like stuff's revealed about her but there's no progression between bond and her she's just the bond girl who's also a cia agent so take that for what it is yeah and with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 11 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond heads to Rio where he has another run-in with Jaws, goes deep into the Amazon rainforest for another run-in with Jaws, finally seeing Bond head off into space for yet another run-in with Jaws. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you for part two.